Thank you, worship team, for leading us in those songs, uh, giving us uh, words to, to express our trust and faith in God. It's a great gift uh, to be able to gather together, and um, I'm glad for all of us being here, and for those of you tuning in online as well, I know there's a lot of sicknesses going around, and, uh, but uh, if you're home, it's good that you're home, uh, but uh, we encourage you uh, to open up the scriptures to James chapter 1, because we're going to be in here for a while, um, so... This is uh, this is going to be good. My kids are really into MythBusters right now. Um, do you know the show? Have you ever seen it? Um, there's two special effects experts, uh, Adam and Jamie, and they set out to methodically bust urban myths or myths in each episode. Um, they test theories to prove or disprove what is real and what is truly myth. It actually involves a lot of math and science and physics and a whole bunch of silliness. If you've ever seen the show. There's usually some sort of element of danger as well as they blow stuff up or set things on fire or smash cars. So it's like little boy's dream, right? Um, if a myth is actually busted, they usually take it to the extreme to see what will actually take to confirm a myth. So it gets pretty comical. You know, what does it take to flip over a bus? What does it take to blow this thing up? And then they start doing it and testing it and, you know, all these crazy things are happening. One of the episodes that we watched recently was one based off the law of physics. So here's the physics question for you that's going to just be on your mind now all day. All right? If you have a car going 50 miles an hour this way, and you have a car going 50 miles an hour this way, and the opposite way, and they crash in the middle, is the car crash equivalent to a car going 100 miles an hour into a brick wall? Okay? Who says it's the same as 100 miles an hour going into a brick wall? All right, who says, no, it's just the equivalent of a 50-mile-an-hour car crash? Okay, I'm not going to tell you the answer, all right? But I'll tell you what, there's a, tr- there's a, there's a reality to it, and some of you are wrong, some of you are right, all right? Uh, you have to watch the show to find out. What they were looking into, what they're trying to test, is Newton's third law of physics about action and reaction. The third law states that for every action, every force in nature... There is also an equal and opposite reaction. So if object A exerts a force on object B, object B also exerts that type of equal and opposite force on object A or outward elsewhere. In other words, forces result from interactions with things. And what James is going to say to us in this text today is that Newton's Third law of physics, action and reaction, must be exemplified in our Christianity in a spiritual and in a physical way. If you don't see Newton's third law at work in our lives, then there's a really good chance you're not part of the Christian universe. And let me tell you that if you don't exist in the Christian universe, you're in grave danger. If you don't exist in the universe of Christianity, outside of that universe there will be utter darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That which has acted upon us with a new creation type of force must be transmitted into an equal and opposite reaction in our physical and spiritual lives as well. What I mean by equal and opposite is this. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, if it lives in me, it will also empower me to live in a completely opposite way in which I used to. That is the power of Christ that is in me. 
So here's a really big question up front for your consideration. How are you reacting to the reality of this Word being planted in you? And this Word being preached week in and week out. Is it doing anything in your physical or spiritual life? And if it doesn't, then you are in grave danger of not being part of the Christian universe. So let's pray. God, I pray that we would react to this Word. That we would see this law of physics that we can observe in the natural world observed in our lives as well in a physical and spiritual way. That this wouldn't just be some idle word that we kind of nod our heads at but do nothing practically with. And now we pray that you would be so kind to teach us now about the meaning of this text. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we go. How are you personally, everybody in this room, everybody online, how are you reacting to this word that's being preached? We know that this word is truth. So I want to look at this passage through the lens of a physical reality of Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So we need to ask ourselves the question, how has this word acted upon us? How has it acted upon us? We see that in verse 18 initially. James writes this, Of His own will, He brought us forth, how? By the word of truth, the gospel message that came to us, that we should be kind of first fruits of His creatures. So how has the word acted upon us? Well, it has caused us to be born again. We truly are now first fruits. That means that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And I don't know about you, but that makes me very thankful and grateful. Because there are things that I have done in my life before I knew Jesus that are very shameful. In fact, not only then, but there are things that I have done even after I became born again that are very shameful. And in the future... I will probably continue to commit sins that are shameful at their core, but even though those acts produce shame, I have been separated from them, and the shame doesn't accumulate and stick to me and build up on me so that I'm weighed down by it. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, it releases me from all of my guilt and shame. Amen. That's what the Word of God does. That's what the Gospel, when it comes to you, that's what it does. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the message that I mentioned last week that your heart just longs to wrap itself around. It's worthy of more of your attention than you're giving it and more of your attention than you're giving to your temptation and chasing after sin until it destroys you and everything you love. We must respond in kind to that type of kindness that has been expressed to us in the Gospel. So that's verse 18. And now let's look at verse 21, because James is going to expand on an analogy that he first surfaced in a negative way in verse 15, but now in verse 21, he's going to utilize it in an equal and opposite positive way. Look at verse 21. He says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the word with meekness, or receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
So here's the analogy that James borrows. James borrows from the natural physical reality of human reproduction. In verse 15, he talks about desires being conceived and birthed, and if allowed to grow, they will eventually bring about death. The whole life cycle is referenced in a negative way with sin, and its ultimate destruction is death. But here, the birth sequence is utilized in a more positive light. This word, the authoritative word of God, has caused it to be born again. We're now first fruits, and that word has been implanted in us. It is in us, and it recreates us, and it settles into our souls, and it starts to produce a harvest of righteousness. The new way of living has been made available for all of our reception. This can be received into your life. Now, I want to be, I want to be relevant to the times, and I want to get you ready for Thanksgiving by talking about football again. All right? Some of you are like, come on, stop talking about football, all right? Some of you might roll your eyes at this because I'm going to give another analogy from the world of football. Some of you might want to throw a flag on me like I threw on you last week, right? Stop talking about it. Anyway, here it goes. In football, one of the distinguishing characteristics of a quote-unquote good quarterback is that they have the ability to throw a ball and put it in a place where only their receiver can catch it. The defensive backs in the NFL, the guys on defense, are so good. They're so athletic. They can run fast. They can jump high. They can react quickly to wherever the ball's going or wherever receiver is going. But a good quarterback has the ability to throw a ball with just the right velocity or just the right angle that only their receiver, their teammate, can catch it. And if he doesn't have that capability and just kind of throws the ball up for anyone to catch it's likely that the other team might get the ball, and that's called an interception, and you don't want that to happen if you want your team to win. I'm just getting ready for Thanksgiving football games, right? All of that to say, James is indicating to us that God has thrown a perfect path to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has put it in a position that when we see it and we behold it in all of its amazingness, we want to reach out and grab hold of it. It's the implanted word that is able to save our souls. That sounds really good. You know what? My soul needs saving. There's a big SOS written on all the pages of my life. I need my soul to be saved and God has provided that way. It can be received by me. He's passed it my way. This is what's been available to us, and it's nothing short of spectacular. This is what the Word of God has done for us. This is the energy that has been exerted on us in the Gospel. That's how the Word has acted upon us. So now, how should we react to that which has been made available to us? There it is. You have the gospel. It's acted upon you. It's made you a new person. Now, how should you react to it? Well, the third law of the Christian universe should apply here as well. We must exert that same amount of outwardly and practically as the word has impacted us inwardly and conceptually. It must be demonstrated in the way we think and the way we live. So what does that look like? And James is going to give us three big categories to think in today. And the first thing that he's going to say, he's going to gather us around the table, pull us in and he says, hey, you, you need to know something. He's going to say, 
We need to know something. So what do we need to know? James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. James is going to start off by grabbing us and gathering us together around a fellowship table. He's going to look us in the eye. And he's going to make a connection and an appeal. And he's going to say, brothers, sisters, listen up. My kinsmen, my people, my beloved brothers, there is something that you need to know. So let me give you this, this proverb. And in this way, he's like Solomon dispensing his one-of-a-kind proverbial wisdom. And so now that he grabs us and he says, hey, you need to know this. What, what, what's the content? Well, okay, James, what do we need to know here? And he says this, know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, this proverb can seem kind of like a generic type of wisdom that can be applied to in many ways and in many contexts. So it's like you could write that on a wall, put it on your fridge or your dashboard, and like that's good. It'll help you out in your day-to-day life. This will work well in your work environment. It'll work well with the people that you pass by on the street, and especially those that you live in closest proximity to you, that you share a household with. So yes, this can be some type of proverbial type of information, wisdom that James is offering us, but, but why all of a sudden, right here, in this, this epistle, he's going to give us this general piece of information right here and now. What was James potentially trying to get at, and why did he gather us around the table here now in verse, 20, or verse 19 of chapter 1, to offer us this proverb. And I think what James wants us to know is that we must be quick to hear. Now, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about the word that's been preached and implanted and given and caused us to be born again. And James is going to say, listen, be quick to hear that message. Be quick to hear what this word, the gospel, has said about you and is saying to you right now, you truly are a first fruit. You need to hear that. Hearing in the Bible was nearly synonymous with obeying and taking action. So in the biblical author's mind, to hear God means to obey God. So in James's mind, to hear God is to obey God. And to obey God is to demonstrate that we have heard God. We need to be quick to listen to what God has said. And then have an equal and opposite reaction to it. The force that has been exerted upon us needs to be replicated in new, practical, first fruit type of ways in our lives. So he's saying, obey, obey the word, hear the word, obey the word, what has come to you. You truly are a new person. And he's going to continue on. He's going to say, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. I think the second command in this proverb can be applied to our communication with each other. But I think it's more about holding our tongue when it comes to offering our two cents on what God has said about the various situations that we find ourselves in. God has brought us forth by a word of truth, and that comes with a whole new way of living and a whole new way of developing maturity in us. And we've already seen that God's chosen method for maturing us is by our experience of trials that test us. 
So in that sense, James is saying, listen to what the Word is saying. You may not like it, but be slow to speak against it. A lot of times we have a tendency to raise objections to God about what God is determined to do in our lives. And we think that we can offer Him some sort of advice on how to run things. And we're actually warned against this type of thinking by the great preacher in Ecclesiastes when he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know what, they're doing is e- or what they are doing evil. Don't be rash with your words, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. So James is saying, look, be quick to listen to what the Word is saying and don't speak against it. And finally, James says, don't be angry towards it. This final instruction is aided by a supporting sentence in verse 20 that draws an extra reason why the instruction needs to be taken and acted upon. Look at it. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear or obey what God has said slow to speak against what God has said, and slow to anger. Why? For man's anger, or anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. Look, I get it, I understand it, but you getting angry with God about what God has determined to authoritatively speak into your life that gave birth to your faith, And getting angry about the methods that he uses to develop your faith won't do you any good. Think about what you get angry with. We get angry when we perceive that things aren't going the way that we want them to. A lot of times we express our anger outwardly at other people, but usually it's sourced in some sort of discontented heart with the way that we think God should orchestrate the events of our lives. Now, a lot of times people use this passage to talk about interpersonal relationships, and I think it can be used that way. I think we can get some proverbial wisdom out of this. And I actually think that James is going to use the proverb here to pave the way for more thorough, explicit teaching on being careful with what comes out of your mouth in chapter 3. And I'm just warning you now. I'm warning you all now that when we get to chapter 3, if you have a hard time controlling what comes out of your mouth, you are going to be very, very uncomfortable with those messages. You and I are going to be called out by God and God is going to use His Word to come out of this mouth and call us all into account. So I hope that we all get ready to repent when we get to chapter 3. Me included. Me included. But James wants us to not be argumentative and adversarial and angry with the authoritative Word of God. What I think James wants us to hear, see here, is that we should be slow in putting our God and the way that He is administering His will on trial with us being the judge and the jury and the bailiff. So think with me. We've been in the book of James for a while now. But think about the context of James' audience. What is not going their way? Well, they're experiencing trials of a variety of kinds, a various variety pack of trials, that were testing their faith. 
And they were having to persevere under that trial, as it says in verse 12. And verse 12 says that their situation would last a lifetime. That's a hard reality, to be under trial for a lifetime. People usually don't use the word persevere when you're in a situation that you actually enjoy. Now, rarely do I hear people say, man, it was so hard to persevere through that Manny Petty the other day, right? Now, for me, that would be excruciating. Oh, my goodness. Actually, you know, that'd be pretty miserable for me. But anyway, um, (laughs) or man, it was really difficult to endure and persevere that delicious meal. No, most people use that word persevere when they're going through a difficult situation, like a marathon or like when your in-laws are coming for Thanksgiving, right? I'm just getting you ready for Thanksgiving, right? So those reading this letter are experiencing trials of a various amount of kinds, and you know what easily happens when you're stressed and under trial? Sometimes you get irritable. Sometimes you get bitter. Sometimes you develop this woe-is-me mindset, and that often comes out in our anger. And James is going to say, be slow to having that anger expressed, especially in response to what God has said. So James pulls us in close around the fellowship table and says, family, there are some things that you need to know. And then the rest of this passage, he's going to tell us what we need to do. So now that we know what we know, now we need to do something. And James is going to say, we need to put away our filthiness, receive the word in meekness, and demonstrate kindness. So here, here this, is, this, is, this is shocking language. James is very blunt here. These words are pretty shocking. The entire passage from here on out is going to stress how we receive, respond to, and react to what this word says. And it's very vivid and colorful in its description. It seems crazy, but James wants us to see how filthy and rampantly wicked we all are so that we get rid of it. And so that we don't put the inhabitants of the world in that awkward and unenviable position where they see in our appearance and in our actions that which is incompatible with our Christianity. He's going to get right to hypocrisy. Look, you, you, can't, you can't be part of the Christian universe and act these ways. You better put that stuff away. It's Newton's law as it applies to the Christian universe. The Word has acted upon us so that we must exert that same amount of force outwardly and practically as the Word has impacted us inwardly and theoretically. So what does that look like? And James says, put away your filthiness. Whoa. Look at that. Verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Do you see the strong words? Who says I see them? Yeah, I see them, yes. These are strong words. I would say that if you left church today and just went to Safeway or Grocery Alley or wherever you do shopping, and you walked up to a stranger and said, hey, um, do you consider yourself filthy and rampantly wicked? You know? Most people would be like, what? No, of course not, Right? Most people would probably think of themselves as either good or maybe neutral. Maybe they're a little bit dirty, 
perhaps even kind of wicked, but not really wicked and rampantly, you know, terrible person, right? Not filthy and rampantly wicked. That would be quite a stretch. Well, think about this. Who on the planet views themselves like that? The only people that are capable of coming up with that type of assessment of themselves are those people that understand the devastation that sin brings. What does sin do? I say this all the time. Sin is sad. Sin always destroys. And here's the case and the point. What did sin destroy? What are the wages of sin? Well, it was death. And who died on our behalf? It was Jesus. The infinitely precious, perfect Son of God was killed because of our sin and for our salvation. And because He was slain in our place, we actually we see how rampantly wicked we are and how filthy we are. That's what sin did. It killed Jesus. And so we want to run away from those former things and put away what we have come to know as filthy and rampantly wicked. James says, Put that stuff away. And it's not just James. This is all the apostolic teaching in the New Testament. Paul insists that we do this as well when he writes the Colossians. He says this, But now you must put them all away. What things? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Now listen, the word that both James and Paul use, it means to cease doing that which you've become accustomed to doing. This is just how you lived your life. Whether you knew it or not, you were wicked and filthy, rampantly. But you must now cease doing what you were once accustomed to doing. Look, it's natural For you to feel anger and experience anger and wrath and malice and slander and the list goes on and on. But you actually need to put that stuff away when you pick up, it's kind of like when you pick up your toys at cleanup time so that the room's not a mess and there's not hazardous conditions to live in. Right? I say that because I have kids. Right? Paul says it to the Colossians, but he also says it to the Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 4.22, To put off your old self. Put it away. Put off that old self. Why? Because it belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And we see it in Peter as well. Peter says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And the author of Hebrews says it as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside, it's that word, to put away every weight and sin which so clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's what James is saying in our text. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's what you do as a believer who has been acted upon by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do you have ears to hear and obey what the New Testament authors are saying? They're saying, look, you need to move away from that stuff. Not just some of it, all of it. That takes a lifetime. When you become a first fruit of God, you die to yourself and you begin to grow past those things that you're formerly known as. You are a new person. You are a new creation. Yes, 
you do still have an old self, but we put it off and crucify it daily, and we cast it away, and we put it aside, and we lay it down as an act of our own will, and we say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Because that way of thinking or behaving is my former life. It's filthy. It's rampantly wicked. It's corrupt. That way of living just doesn't work with me anymore. It's incompatible with my new life. Those desires that I used to have, I still might have, but I recognize them for what they are. They're deceitful. They're promising me something that will promise something of satisfaction, but it won't satisfy me. But since the gospel has come to me, I, like Jesus, have lived, I have died, and now I live again. I'm a new creation. Look at these shocking words. Filthiness. And not just wickedness, but rampant wickedness. The first word on a surface level and a physical level means external grime, stained, or muddied. But there's a deeper meaning of moral defilement. Look, it's one thing if your clothes are stained, but it's a whole other thing if your soul is stained. You've got a muddy soul. It's dirty. It's grimy. And not only that, your soul is also rampantly wicked. Look, it's budget review and approval time of the year. And what James is saying is that there's wickedness in excess. You and I all have a surplus of wickedness and an overabundance of filth, so everyone's going to get bonuses this year, right? There's enough muck and grime to go around. We're very, very tainted. And the word that James uses is the Greek word kakaios, which sounds a lot like the Spanish word that is used to discharge things from our bodies that at the end of the digestion process. And that's what James says you're rampantly wicked in. You're filled up with that type of stuff. And that stuff needs to be put away because it's filthy. You get it? So we need to put that filthiness away and instead receive the word with meekness. Now, we already talked briefly about this when we looked at the first part of verse 21 earlier on, but now I want to finish the teaching of the second half of verse 21. We talked about a good quarterback as somebody who has the ability to deliver a good ball that only can be caught by a receiver on his team. But a good quarterback could actually be the best quarterback on the planet, in our case, in the whole universe, but if we don't wrap our fingers around what has been dropped into our bread basket or in our laps, then it's going to be an incomplete pass. You actually have to catch it. You have to receive this word. Now, I know that you're going to roll your eyes, but one last NFL illustration, all right? Many arguments have been had over the years about what constitutes a catch in the NFL, right? When is it official that a catch is made? When does possession of the football actually occur? What is the process of a catch? This has been much disputed. And this is what the NFL says a catch is. It's controversial, it's disputed, but nonetheless, these are the requirements. A player must do three things in order to receive a ball. He must control the ball. He must have two feet or another body part on the ground and down. That's pretty good. It's pretty concrete stuff. Does anyone know the last requirement? Anybody? 
You have to make, who said it? You have to make a football move. What's that? Right? Okay, he, he caught it and he's down, but now did he make a football move, right? They must make a football move. It's so vague and it's hard to determine. What is that? They are looking for something like another step. Or like a player reaching for the first down or the line of the game. They have to perform that move. And if you do that football move, whatever it is, they say, that is a catch. And why do I say all this? Because James, this is what James is getting at with that word receive. How do we know if we have received the implanted word? Well, James is going to say that we must do some sort of first fruit move. You must not remain where you are, but you must take another step toward the line to gain with what you've been given. We've received this word, and we do something with it. And James is going to say that our first first fruit football move is to display meekness. This word means gentleness or humility. We talked about humility last week and how it's not a bad thing even though it's viewed as a weakness in the eyes of the world. In the world, only the strong survive. But in the Christian universe, humility before God is essential because our humility mimics Christ's example of humble submission to the will of His Father even unto death. And so we have new hearts that are humbled by what has been given to us. And so we say, I'll follow. I'm going to put away that filthiness and that rampant wickedness. I'm not going to be the writer of my own life and destiny. I'm going to submit myself to God. I'm going to be, receive His Word authoritatively in meekness in my life. I'm going to do something with it. And I'm going to practically demonstrate kindness. And that's our last point. He says to re- receive the Word with meekness. And then we must practically demonstrate kindness. Listen to these verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For when he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, there's really a lot in these verses that we won't cover, but I do want to get to the main point. The main point is this. We need to practically demonstrate kindness to others you can't help but notice the flurry of Christian activity in these verses about doing. The Word is acted upon us, so there needs to be a reaction to it that's poured out on other people. God has been so kind to us, and we need to replicate and demonstrate that kindness to the have and have not alike. The kindness of our God came to the doorstep of our lives, and it snatched us from a wide road leading to destruction, and it put us on a narrow road that leads to life. It took us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. It met us like a good Samaritan on a road when we were all busted up on the side of the road. He bandaged us up, He paid our debt, and He sent us on our way. So the third law of physics in the Christian universe says, go and do likewise. And that's precisely what we see James 
saying to us in this text. We must be continually putting our faith into actionable steps. And so James is going to provide us two things. He says that means we bridle our tongues and we bless orphans and widows. Our lives can't stay the same. Look at verse 26. There's a, like I said, there's a lot more we could teach from this, and we're not. But we're just going to go right to verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Whoa. Things that are worthless are not worth having. And James says that we can have a religion that is worthless. This means that there's a way of going about religion that has no real value and it's useless. You must hear me say this. Because there are many in our world, some here today, some listening online, there are some who are counting on a worthless religion to pay a debt that is infinitely owed to God by them who is meticulously calculating the debt that is owed Him because of our sin. And if you come to the end of your life and you hope that your worthless religion will somehow pay your debt in full, you're going to be in for a very rude awakening. You know, I shared this with someone after the service last week and it was like fresh grace washed over them. When I talked about how between God and man, there's only one mediator. It's not you and all your good works or you and your priest. It's, it's, it's you and Jesus, someone who paid your debt. Paul tells Timothy, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. And it's the man Christ Jesus. Why? He gave himself as a ransom. He paid the debt for all of us. What he gave was not inconsequential or worthless. He gave the only thing that was of consequence and worthwhile. He gave his very own life so that he could mediate on our behalf before a holy God. He's the only one that did it right. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that your lack of self-control over your tongue and your inability to demonstrate kindness type of religion is worth anything. If that's your case, your religion is worthless But if it's not, then James is going to tell us exactly what is useful and worthwhile religion and what it looks like. And he says that in verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. You better listen up. He says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's been said that verse 27 of James 1 is the, is the epitome of the whole package of God's will for believers. If you want to know what God wants you to do, do verse 27. They won't be worthless. That's the only worthwhile, consequential thing that you can do. We must function as salt and light in a flavorous and a very dark world. And it's very to see the social implications of this verse. So this verse tells me that Christians must be actively involved in social issues and school board meetings and soup kitchens. We need to be actively involved in politics and town hall meetings. We need to be actively involved in nursing homes and foster care systems and orphanages. But 
when we're actively involved in those places where God's kindness needs to be on display, we need to make sure that we maintain our saltiness and our shine. So James basically says what Jesus says, be in the world but not of it, and when you're in the world, keep yourself unstained by it. Don't let that rampant wickedness and filthiness that's natural to you to come out in those settings. Don't let that griminess of your old life or the lives of other people get on you, but realize as you bring the scrubbing brush of God's kindness to people, it might get a little messy. James says, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. These are very vulnerable people who are facing affliction and distress. This implies pain and pressure. So Christians are summoned to be the tangible expression of Christ to go help meet those needs. Do you know how important it is to visit with people whom the world has discarded and cast aside? If you're a believer in Christ? I was debating on whether I share this or not because it's actually a little bit embarrassing to me, but I'll share it because it's not about me, it's Christ in me. But there have actually been many times in my life that after interacting with people, they have said something to the effect that they can, quote, see Christ in me. It's usually because I go visit them, or they're shut in, or they're widow, or they're on their hospice bed, and I go and I dignify them, and I, and I be there with them in those moments. And they say something like, I can see Christ in you. And I think this is because of the way I look at them. I just go dignify them. Maybe they hadn't been looked at for a long time. Maybe the ones who used to look at them no longer look at them. They've been discarded. It must be a very painful experience to exist, but feel as if you didn't. So go. Go and let the countenance of Christ beam in your face as you care for people that desperately need to be cared for. That is, quote-unquote, religion that will be worth something in the end because it will be an equal and opposite reaction to the way that God has loved us. We must practically demonstrate sacrificial kindness to others. It's kind of like what we see in this video that I want to show you. The sun rises over the mountains, then sets over the seas. Each day the Lord paints the sky. He illustrates his majesty. His light shines through the trees and sets grassy fields aglow. He sends storm clouds of rain so flowers will bloom and grow. Our Lord frees the galaxies that swim in the night sky. We stare in awe at the beauty above. It's him the stars glorify. Every living creature, big or small, plays a part in his design, the creator of all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But man he made in his own image, giving him exceptional worth. Knitted together in our mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, set apart before we are born and called by his saving grace. Fully known and intricately woven, a baby's on its way, human from the moment of conception, unique with its own DNA. 
If you unraveled its DNA strands, it could travel many times to the moon. It's a pattern that never existed before, but it's often ended far too soon. Fallen human beings believe they can decide which lives have worth, allowing for godlike power in the hands of the ungodly on earth. Think of the deadliest tragedies, like the Second World War. 56.4 million people died. Abortion has killed more. At just six weeks old, the baby has a beating heart. First, second, third trimester. Poison crushed and torn apart. The murder of innocent human life has the power to traumatize. Our hearts should be broken. This is mass infanticide. Each life lost is a son or daughter, a child of God unlike any other. Circumstances are heavy. Sometimes it's hard to cope. But where there is life, there is also hope. Many women believe abortion is their only option. If only they were introduced to the millions waiting for adoption. A woman walks into a clinic confused, scared, and alone. Then she leaves with a brown paper bag or a big gaping hole. If only there had been one person to show her another way. There could be one more person walking on earth today. We serve a God who moves mountains promises to hear our prayers. He is sovereign over everything and his power is beyond compare. Proverbs 31.8 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Will you sit by and watch? Maybe move to shed a tear. Injustice should move you to action. And action can start here. see there is not just a one social issue thing. What I think you see there is a plea for all Christians to come and be committed to the work of the Lord in all arenas of life. I love the line that says, if there's just one person to show them a different way, not make them do another way, but just show them, hey, there's a better way of going about this. And not just with that issue, but in every... Look, I, I used to be filthy and rampantly wicked, and I re- recognize that you might not view yourself that way, but that's the way I was. But God spoke authoritatively in my life. He gave me the gospel, and I'm a whole new person. Can I tell you about that, God? What James is going to say to us is, the, is with the same amount of energy that's been acted upon us in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ has to be replicated to those in the world. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and we're going to sing a hymn that is a classic, older hymn that may not be very familiar to the congregation, but we'll sing it anyway just because it has great lyrics. So if you don't know the tune, then that's okay. Just let the words wash over you and impact you. But in the meantime, let's all stand up and make a commitment to the service of the Lord by exerting the same amount of energy that's been given to us to make us new creations, to make new creations out of others and bring about first fruit status of others in our world because we care. Let's stand as we sing, Come All Christians Be Committed.